All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles right now to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. While you're turning there, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of review. Um, the last time I spoke, I, I spoke on the book of Daniel, and we talked about chapter 2. In chapter 2, um, King Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and he, well, excuse me, he has a dream, and he goes to all the chief priests and the magicians, and he says, tell me my dream. And no one can tell him his dream except for Daniel. Daniel tells him the dream and tells him what the interpretation of the dream was. He saw a statue. The head was of gold, the shoulders of silver, midsection was of bronze, and the feet were of clay and iron, right? And, and it stood for kingdoms. And what he saw was he saw a rock come and smash the statue which represented these earthly kingdoms, and it became a mountain and filled the whole earth, right? And we talked, um, this was a couple weeks ago, we talked about that is the kingdom of God, that the mountain of the Lord is being established in the earth, and it's growing to fill the entire earth just as Daniel prophesied. Um, this is like, you know, 2,500 years ago, this random dude in Babylon prophesied that this was going to happen, and this is exactly what has actually happened? Christianity, the, the kingdom of Jesus, has been going forth all over the, all over the earth um, that the rest spectacular prophecy. I think it's a very strong prophetic sign um, that the rest of the Bible is also trustworthy and true. And what I'd like to do is hone in a little bit on verse 37 from Daniel chapter 2 first to set up a context for chapter 3. And it, it says this, this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Okay? This is important for us to understand. It is God who is overseeing the affairs of nations. He raises up kings and he deposes them. He gives power to civilizations and to empires and he raises them up and he also judges and destroys them. This is true. This is all throughout scripture. We see this and a lot of times in our, you know, post-modern society, it's very difficult for us to think in these terms, but I think the scriptures are pretty clear that God is the one who is superintending the affairs of nations. And so I talk a lot about things like politics. I talk about things in our current events. Why? Because I think they matter. I think God is concerned with these things. I think we too should be concerned with these things. I do not believe in drawing this huge division, right, between things of religion and everything else. I think that that is, is a very confused way of viewing the world. I think many of us, sometimes there's a temptation for us to have like our church lives and then we have like our real lives, right? And that's where we do, that's who we really are. And this is the place where we kind of put on the, the Jesus mask. Hey brother, how you doing? Right? And we act a little happier than we normally are and we pretend things are okay. Can I just say, that is demonic, that is demonic. You come in here and you act all fake? <laughs> Look, let me put it to you. Let me put it like this. God sees right through your mask. And guess what? A lot of us can too. <laughs> I 
Now hear me, I'm not, I understand why we do it, because we're afraid. We come and we, you know, it's like, oh, these Jesus people, and so I got to use my, here's my church vocabulary, oh, being sanctified by the Lord, <laughs> right? There's grace, and, and there's and I, I get why we do it, we want to fit in, okay? So there's grace, and, and there's mercy for it, but look, you got to learn to be real with God, and you got to learn to be real with people. And that's the beauty of intimacy. Intimacy is understanding that who you are is loved. Who you are is appreciated. With all of your faults, all of your flaws, everything, just the way you are, that God loves you and that he's established us as a people who are committed to loving one another. Now, we all do that imperfectly, okay? We're all going to run into times where people reject us for small things, where people, you know, get mad at us or offended with us. That's life. Guess what? That's also what family, that's how it happens in family, right? Right? Like, that's part of intimacy, too, is dealing with the realities of our weakness, of our lack of love. But it's the commitment to one another that enables us to fight through and to grow in our ability to love one another. That's what this is all about. So I want to encourage you, in our um, house churches, we have made a concerted effort to start really focusing in on getting to know one another better and giving time for people to share what's going on in their lives and to pray for one another. We think that is gonna, that's the vision for our house churches. If you are not connected with a house church, I want to lovingly call you to connect, right? To connect, to be part of a house church. Now, I understand some of you live far away. That's okay, okay? But if you're here in this community, connect in a house church and share what's really going on in your life, okay? That you have freedom, okay? We're not gonna. We're not gonna judge. Real. I remember being real, or if we do, that's, no, don't do that. Okay. It's okay to be real. I remember um, I, my spiritual mom. Um, she was telling me, you know, she met with uh, one of our students in my last ministry, and she said like uh, half the meeting, the girl that she was meeting was was just cussing, right? Just f this, and I can't stand these effing people, and just cussing the entire time. And and my spiritual mom was like. Okay, she just listened like the whole time. She just listened to it all. And, um, and she was like, you know, if there's all that anger, sometimes they, they, they don't know how to communicate that without cursing, right? And she's just like, you know, if, if somebody is, is, you know, not used to that, they're used to communicating through curse words and stuff like that. Well, as, as believers, we have to have the ability to see through the appearance of things and see to the heart. Right? We can't be offended by the weaknesses of one another so that we can't love people as they are. Does that make sense? Okay. So that, that's our heart um, as a ministry. But I, I say all of this to say that if our religion, every area of our true and genuine and authentic, right, then it should affect every area of our lives. And that's also the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is not just to be about what we do at church. That's just one small part. The kingdom is much larger than the church, right? It, it speaks to and affects every area of life. So when we read these stories about Daniel, what's going on, most of this stuff, it's not happening in the synagogue, right? It's not happening at the quote-unquote church. It's not happening at the temple. It's happening in real life. And for us as believers, we have to be able to see how the kingdom operates outside of just our church life. Amen? Okay, the second thing is what we're going to see here with Nebuchadnezzar, this is going to set up a type that really um, is, is, is really important to see in the rest of Scripture, but I'm going to get there in a second. If you found Daniel chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. It's going to be on the board. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high 
and six cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Let's pause right there. 60 cubits is about 90 feet. And six cubits is about nine feet. So if you get a picture of this, this um, is an obelisk, okay? This is something that is very tall and skinny. If you've ever seen the Washington Monument, that's a, that's a, a huge obelisk. I think it's the biggest in the world, okay? But that's the general shape of this thing. This is an image made of gold, and King Nebuchadnezzar has set it up here. In verse 2, he then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Let's go ahead and let's pause right here. Okay, this is a famous story in Scripture. Many of us have heard this. If we've grown up in church, we know the basics of this story. I want us to get a slightly more mature understanding of what is going on here. Okay, now in we might think of this, what, what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's kind of doing like a, a, you need to pledge your allegiance to this symbol of the state. Okay, this is very much a political, a political, um, uh, ceremony, right? This is the symbol of me. It's the symbol of my government, of my rulership. And you're going to come and you're going to fall down and worship. And in those days, what you had was you had a mixing of the political and the religious. Okay? You had a mixing of the political and the religious. But this is about half worship and about half allegiance and, and, and this is like saluting the flag. Okay? It's kind of a, a mixture of both of them. And these types of things were common in the ancient world. Why? Because ba Babylon... This is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest king of that particular dynasty. And he rules a very vast empire with lots of different peoples. And what we see is he takes peoples from every culture and he brings them, he trains their leaders in his type of Babylonian university. And he trains them um, to be leaders in his kingdom, right? So these are people from widely different backgrounds who worship different gods. Now in those days, everyone believed in many gods. There was just this one people that didn't, right? These crazy monotheists, right? But in those days, everybody believed in different gods. And you would believe that your God is blessing and protecting your people group. So what happens when your people gets conquered by another people? Well, usually what that means is you go, well, their God is stronger. So what happens to a lot of people is they start to worship the God. And they start to follow the gods of those who conquered them. Does this make sense? This is very common in the ancient world. There was an understanding. There's lots of different gods, but who's the strongest? We don't really know, right? right? We worship and honor our gods that we grew up with because they've done pretty good so far. But if our peoples get conquered, well, then that god's probably the better god. It's probably the bigger god, right? And that was the understanding. So you have to understand this is a very um, polytheistic culture. And what you have here is Nebuchadnezzar the king is demanding that everybody recognize his power. He's the one who did it. He conquered all of them, right? 
All these peoples, I've conquered them. I have the divine favor and will of the gods. Now, this to us seems really um, crazy, right? It seems pretty insane. But can I just say this? This is what happens to almost every government. Every government that becomes powerful and rich, what, they, what starts to happen is they start to get power crazy. Okay, this is like the story of history. Okay, every empire in history has gone through this where when you start to amass great power, you start to become tyrannical. And what we're going to see is that this idea of a government that has been overcome with with power hunger and tyranny and oppression, this is going to be represented by an image in Scripture, and we're going to see it again and again and again and again. And that image is the image of a wild beast, okay? The image of a wild beast. Daniel is clearly making reference to this image of a beast right here in chapter 3. He talked about the image that's set up that is 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and 6 types of instruments Worshiping around it. Are we seeing some of the connection here? Okay. In Revelation, which is another apocalyptic book, we're going to see the same symbology of 666, the number of man, the idea that man gets filled with all this power and this craziness and starts to oppress all the other peoples around it. This theme of, of political empires becoming wild beasts is going to be a continued theme throughout the book of Daniel. Okay, we're going to continue to talk about this throughout the coming chapters because you're going to see it's over and over. It's portrayed in that sense. Now, I want us to understand this because if you grew up at church, you probably had like a lot of this like, you know, whatever you do, don't take the mark of the beast. I don't know if you guys ever had that talk when you're like five years old, right? Like one day somebody's going to come and they're going to try and draw like a 666 and if they do you are screwed <laughs> right like you're in big trouble if you get that mark right so what happens is you know christians are like anything that sounds like anything like that right like tattoo no <laughs> right like you want to put a chip in me mark of the beast <laughs> right we become like somewhat paranoid about this mark that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, okay? I want us to understand this, that I don't think we're supposed to be paranoid about getting some type of mark on our body or having some type of chip implanted in us, okay? That in itself is not inherently evil, okay? That, can I tell you what that is? It's a religious spirit. Religious spirit is you can only judge the way things are by the outward appearance of things. You have no understanding of the substance of things. Right, remember we were just talking about people being heck of fake? <laughs> Religious spirit. The only way you can judge it is by the appearance of things. You can't see into the heart of somebody and see what's really there. Okay? Same thing. When we talk about no, no, be no mark of the beast, you can't write anything on me or whatever. No, come on, understand what's happening here. It's not talking about, it. it's talking about pledging fealty and loyalty to this government that gets out of control. Am I making sense? This is important to understand the spiritual root of this because this theme is all throughout the scriptures, but especially in this in apocalyptic literature, it's going to talk about this a lot. Why? Because governments are dangerous. Okay, this was common knowledge 300 years ago. Okay, 300 years ago, everyone in America knew that governments are dangerous. Why? Because they all fled from those crazy governments in Europe. 
right? If you were here, you're like, yeah, I'm on the governments are dangerous train, right? I'm all about that. Why? Because they just tried to kill me over there. Those crazy governments over in Europe tried to kill us, and that's why so many people came over to America. So you have to understand the founding principles of our nation, the, the primary thing, the one piece of our national ideology is that governments are like wild beasts. They get power hungry, they take more and more of our freedoms, and then they oppress and they tyrannize. And so what happened was the founding fathers were devoted to solving this problem. And what they did was they created a cage for the beast. Okay, That cage is called the Constitution. The Constitution is the cage that keeps the wild beast controlled. That's the idea. So what do we have? We have a three-part government who they, they, now we would make the government fight amongst itself. It's like a three-headed hydra, right? And one's like, you're getting too big. And the other like, no, you're getting too big, right? And then what happens, they have to rotate all the time, right? You don't leave the same people in power, right? They got to win elections every four years, right? Why? Because if the same person's in power, what happens, they get more and more power-hungry and corrupt and crazy. That's the idea, okay? And then we have the whole Constitution that says our government can only do this, 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 and this. That's it can't do anything else. That's the whole idea of a constitution that gives enumerated powers to the federal government. Is this too complicated? You got, come on, you took, you know, took civics and stuff. You guys got the basic idea here, right? Okay, what's my point? Why? Because this entire ideology is under direct attack right now in our nation. Okay, it's under direct attack. Right now, we are having a Supreme Court battle. Do you know what the entire battle revolves around? It revolves around the constitution. The entire battle right now is for the Constitution. Brett Kavanaugh has been nominated by our president. Brett Kavanaugh is a, an original. In the way that it was a school of law is that the Constitution should be interpreted in the way that it was originally intended. That's the whole idea. We should like, okay, what did they mean when they wrote that in the Constitution? And that's how we should judge. Okay, that's now a conservative ideology of law. And then you have... You know, this idea that the Constitution, no, the Constitution is a living document, right? It's alive, and it breathes, and it evolves, and we can, you know, interpret it however we want. That's what it comes down to, okay? Can I just say this? Roe versus Wade is an, it's an abomination of a judicial ruling. The idea that the founders intended that every single American have a right to an abortion is such, is such a raping of the Constitution, that it is ridiculous. That and So, I don't want to go too much on this. But we need to understand the heart of this, okay? Why? Because there is a battle right now over the question of, really, is the government a caged beast or is it the Savior? That's what's being debated right now. This is the, this is the war that's happening right now in our nation. What exactly is the government? And look, I'm not going to go too long on this, but it's important. Okay, socialism has two main ideologies. Okay, I wrote a Facebook post about this a week ago. You have to understand the ideology of socialism to see why it's evil. Number one, socialism demonizes people as oppressors. Okay, socialism demonizes people as oppressors. Karl Marx, a couple hundred years ago, his people of choice were the capitalists, right? The evil bourgeoisie who owned the factories, right? They are the oppressors. They are oppressing everybody. So what should we do? Kill them and take their stuff, and then we can share it. 
Okay, that's Mark. That's classic Marxism. What we have now is a neo-Marxism in our culture. It's happening right now, and it's reformulated the classic Marxist approach to be something like this. There are these evil oppressors. Who are they? The white male Christian traditional people. Okay, and they are oppressing all the minorities in America today. You are being oppressed by these people, right? Why is Trump hated so much? Why? Because he, he fits this mold so well, right? And that's why socialism is preaching you should hate this man. You should hate him. Can I just tell you, that goes against almost everything we know from what the scripture teaches us about government. What you're going to see over and over is that Daniel never hates Nebuchadnezzar. Can I tell you, Nebuchadnezzar is far more evil than Trump. Throwing people in furnaces. With Daniel, he, okay? It's far more evil than Trump. But what do you see with Daniel? He loves, you see uh, this evidence, he loves Nebuchadnezzar. He's committed to him. Even he knows he's evil. Daniel's not blind, right? But he's committed to serving and loving him in the right spirit. He refuses to do evil on Nebuchadnezzar's behalf, right? But he's committed to loving him. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, this is how you can discern some of the evil of socialism. I'll say this. I opposed President Obama on almost everything he said, okay? But I was committed to loving him and honoring him and praying for him. Can you understand the difference between the spirit here? Why? Because my battle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's against the powers. The weapons of my warfare are not carnal but spiritual for the tearing down of strongholds, right? Tearing down these ideologies that raise itself above the knowledge of God. That's what our battle is. So number one way that you can discern that socialism is evil is because it demonizes people. It says these people are the evil people. And what it does is it gets you to justify evil treatment of these people. That's why now we have a whole slew of racists in our culture. They're openly racist against white people now. And it's like, yeah, but they're not in power. So they're not real racists. No, they're real racists. Okay, they're real racist. This idea that you can only be racist if you're white, that is some kind of garbage ideology. Okay, that is not true. Scripture tells us, no, who are the real oppressors? Demons. That's what Jesus says. He says, love your enemies, speak of human enemies, and pray for them. He says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to them your other cheek. If he demands your cloak, you give him your shirt. What's the idea? You're saying the Romans are not your enemies. Who are the enemy? The one who holds you in bondage. It's a spiritual bondage of sin. The one you need freedom from, right, is the, is the prince of the air. This is what Jesus says. All of this is, this is standard Christianity. I am shocked by how many Christians are falling into this trap of socialism. It is so shocking to me. It shows a complete, total misunderstanding of Scripture. How we twist scripture. We want to make it say, no, look, scripture is supernatural. If you don't believe in angels and demons, you cannot believe in scripture. It's not compatible. If you don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, he actually healed people. These things are actually possible. Now, I don't know what kind of Bible you're reading. You are reading the new American 21st century postmodern version. Okay, you are not reading the words that are on the page here. That's number one. Socialism demonizes people as oppressors. Number two, it says that government is the savior. 
It tries to let the government out of the cage. No, let's give it more power. Why? Because the government can save us. The government can share all of our wealth, and then we'll be happy, right? The government, they can stop the evil oppressors, and they can answer all of the ills of society and save us all. Okay, this is socialism. These are the basic tenets of socialism. And I'll tell you, the ideology itself is corrupt and evil, which is why the fruit of it has always been evil. There has never been a society on the face of the earth that has embraced these values and not deteriorated, not gotten worse. Okay, now that's a lot to unpack. I'm, I, I can't do it now, right? But brothers and sisters, this is part of my, my problem right now with the church is we become so church-oriented that we can't see where the battle is really happening. We're not even fighting. So many Christians are so disconnected from the battle. is split and divided. And right now in our nation over this question of socialism, and so much of the church is split and divided and has no idea how to speak on this kind of stuff. Okay? So I challenge you, get some conviction. Get some conviction. Why? Because we're about to read about three people who had some deep conviction, and it's because they had conviction that they were able to stand in the time of testing. Okay? So I'm going to summarize some of this so we don't take all day reading this passage because most, most of you know this story, right? The story is Nebuchadnezzar goes bow down to this thing or you die. And they play the music, and everybody bows down except for three dudes. Okay? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and some of the guys who bow down look over and they're like, oh, ah, right? So they bring these guys before Nebuchadnezzar, and, he, and, and these guys are, are provincial officials. These guys have been elevated to power. So Nebuchadnezzar gives them benefit to goes, did you really do that? And they're like, oh, king, let's, let's look at their answer. Verse 16. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or to worship any god except their own god. Therefore, 
Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Whoo! Says their names every time. We can't just say them sometimes, you know? All right. All right, there's a, a couple things I want us to take from this story. I know many of us are familiar with it. I want to hone in on a couple things that happened. Number one, the three, they say this, our God is able to save us, but even if he does not, we won't do this. This is a powerful statement of faith, brothers and sisters. This is a powerful statement of faith. This happens to us all the time in our lives. Where we, we do a, a, a step of faith. I always say this. I quote John Wimber who says, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. That's how you know it's really faith. Because it, it's a risk. It's not faith if there's no risk. Faith requires it. Why? Because it shows real trust. If we have a Christianity that is void of risk, then we will never experience God in our lives because he requires real faith. He requires that we show that we really do trust him when there's consequences, right? That's when he shows up in our lives. That's why scripture says this over and over that we must die to ourselves. We must die to these fears of what will happen if we don't obey God. We must die to those things, die to those dreams. Why? So that we can come into new life. We can, be in, we can come into resurrection life. We can experience the life of God. Why? Because then he starts to work in our lives. That is the principle that's found all throughout scripture. And that's what we see here. Now, the problem is this. I have, I've been walking now with the Lord for over 20 years. 20 years. Okay? I'm more passionate now than I ever was. So all those people are like, jaded and cynical and like oh yeah you know yeah those little young people they're just passionate for a while and then they join the real world don't listen to the jaded cynical people you don't have to you don't have to 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 sputter out in your fire okay scripture says you know paul says never be lacking for zeal never be lacking for zeal right we should have a passion that becomes deeper and more profound in our lives but here's what I'll tell you. This is what happens to a lot of people. They take a season where they're passionate about the Lord, and they start to take steps of faith. And here's the part that sucks. God doesn't act in the way that they expected him to. I have seen this one over and over and over again in my life. <laughs> he doesn't do what I thought he would do. I'll tell you this. If you're walking in faith, that's going to happen to you many times. Why? Because his ways are higher than our ways. If, if he always did what I thought he would do, then it doesn't take faith. Right? God's a robot. I know what he'll do. I press this button. Right? I pray one hour, I get this blessing. Right? I evangelized one dude, I get whatever. Whatever it might be. Whatever act of faithfulness you want to fit in there. Right? This idea that I know exactly what God's going to do. And then what happens is you do your act of faith and God doesn't do what you expect him to do. This is, the, this is the place where many people start getting really disillusioned in their walk with God, right? God, 
I gave you the thing that you asked for. I followed the directions, right? I studied the manual. I did the thing. Where's the blessing? Where's the freedom? Where's whatever it might be that I was expecting? And I'll tell you, I've gone through this many times in my life, okay? I was convinced, right? I was convinced. One year of morning prayer and then revival. Maybe two years. I was convinced, right? But I had to be woken up to the fact that maybe it's not going to happen like I expected it to happen, right? A lot of people think, this, oh, I trusted in God, and I did. I took all the steps, right? I got advice from people, and I started dating this person, and then they broke my heart. <laughs> God, I did it all right. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I got Pastor Dennis's blessing, right? And then they broke my heart. It's your fault. You must not be real, right? Well, I say that in kind of jest, but I'll tell you, man, half the people I know that have walked away from the Lord have done so because they got their heart broken in a relationship. They expected God to protect them, right, from their own folly. Did you stop me, God? Right? It happens all the time. I say this loving. Look, this is why I say, don't see yourself as like, you know, the spiritual guru. No, we are all little children in the spirit. What does that mean? You're going to make mistakes. And guess what? When it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would, it might not be because God doesn't exist, but maybe you just don't know God is thought as good as you thought you did. And I'll tell you, that is a, a loving wake-up call of humility. Right? That is a wonderful opportunity for you to grow in humility. Right? When you get disappointed in God, you have an opportunity in your disappointment to be like Job. Right? You guys know the story of Job? Right? Job, he did everything right. <laughs> right? It was because he did everything right that he went through hell. Does it say in scripture somewhere that if you do everything right, you won't go through hell? Oh, it says the opposite. Oh, how about that? Oh, interesting. Yes, in this life you will have tribulation, says Jesus. Anyone who will come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. To the party? No, to the crucifixion. <laughs> right? If you want to follow Jesus, God ain't promising a party in this life. It's probably a party, party in the next life. Okay? This life ain't the party. And when you expect to follow Jesus means everything's going to be glorious and party like that is not what it says. It says in this life there will be trials, right? There will be tribulations, but take heart for I've overcome the world, right? Take heart. What's, what's, he, what's he saying? There will be a party on the other side. Well, that's no good to me now, Jesus. I need a party now. <laughs> that's where the faith comes in. That's where the risk comes in. Guess what? If, if this is all a lie and God's not real, man, y'all are some suckers. <laughs> we are some suckers up in here. Right? That's what Paul says. We're the greatest of fools. Right? If Christ didn't really rise from the dead, we are the greatest of fools. Right? That's what a lot of people say about us. And they're absolutely true. 
you know, if there's no heaven and no resurrection and none of that, joke's on us. <laughs> that's, why this, that's why this is called the walk of faith. Because we're actually risking something. Right? Like we're actually putting our chips down and saying, I trust this guy's advice. This guy gave me this advice. I'm trusting him. I'm putting it down. Okay? But my question is this. Is our faith, is it centered on our knowledge of God, meaning God's going to do what I know he's going to do, or is it centered on trusting who he is? Because our knowledge of God is going to fail again and again. In fact, it's one of the primary ways that we grow in our spiritual walks. We, go th- we grow through disappointment. Guess what? Peter was disappointed when Jesus was crucified. It seemed like, holy cow, uh, it was over. Right? He had all these dreams of being prime minister, and it was over. Almost always, walking with God will lead you into disappointment. That's part of the journey. That's part of the pathway. Right? And I just want to speak to some of you right now. When we say, I'm going to trust God because he's able to save and he's able to deliver, which is true. Okay? But even if he does not, I'm going to obey him. I say this all the time, but true Christianity is about resurrection. It's about what happens after the disappointment and after the reaffirmation of trust. That's when God shows up in ways that we did not expect him to. That's when he shows himself who he really is. That's where the revelation comes. Job had given up. He's like, God's not fair. This is not fair. And then God shows up and gives him revelation, right, of what he's really like. And then he gives Job double of everything that he had, right? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. If you've been in places of disappointment with your walk with God, I say this with love. I've been there too. Many times I've, I've walked into places of great disappointment with God. I want to encourage you. Put your trust in him again. Put your trust in him again. He's God you're not. And come to a place where you say, God, I don't understand why this happened or why you allowed this to happen. But Lord, I know that I don't know everything. But I trust you. Let go of your bitterness. Let go of your resentment. Let go of those things. The resentment, they prolong. They prolong the blessing. Okay? The bitterness, the resentment, the unforgiveness, it prolongs it. I know people that have been caught in a trap of unforgiveness for decades of their lives, not realizing that if they would just let it go, then the blessing would be able to, be co- to come. Right? Just trapped in a prison of unforgiveness. Let it go. Okay? And the nature of hope is this. I, I, always, I always tell people, you know, what, you can tell when you're starting to get real faith in your life because you start to feel the fear of disappointment. That's a good sign. That means that faith is coming from outside of you, right? That faith is provoking you to a greater level of faith than you have. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So when you start to feel great hope for something, then what happens is you start to struggle and wrestle with the fear of disappointment, okay? That's the place where you say, God, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I trust you in this. I trust you in it, and I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you, amen? Secondly, I want us to take away from this passage 
What was the actual outcome of this? The ones who trusted Nebuchadnezzar, they got killed. They threw him into the fire and they died. Three people died in this story. It just one Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was the ones who trusted King Nebuchadnezzar, right? They trusted in him because he was the one who appeared like he had all the power. But this is the nature of this thing. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't care about them. He wanted to use them to get what he wanted. This is the nature of human power. Human power wants to use us. And God says that he's different. He's not like a man that he should lie. He's not interested in using you so that he can get something that he wants. I know that sounds weird because there's this whole branch of theology that shall remain unnamed. It says that's what God does. But I'll say this. This is what differentiates God, that he is love. Okay? He's not after using you and discarding you. His will takes into account our good because he loves us, right? He's not trying, he's not like, a lot of our hearts are like, God, you always want me to do the stuff that I don't want to do. You want me to give up the stuff that I love, right? Yes, he's asking for trust. That's exactly what he does. He asks for trust. Will you trust me with the thing that you love so much? The thing that you trust in currently. Will you trust me with that? Will you give me your idol? Look, if I could just break Christianity down into one sentence, that's it. Will you give God your idol? Will you give Jesus your idol? When we do that, he shows himself far more worthy of that trust in our lives. To the degree that we hold on to the idols in our lives, those are the places that God cannot reveal himself in our lives. Let's trust him. Let's give up our idols in saying, God, I trust you in this, right? The last thing is this. I'm sure that when Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were doing this, I'm sure something like their life is flashing before their eyes, right? They're thinking about all the stuff that they'll never do, right? All the great times with friends they could have had if they had just bowed down to the stupid image, right? Nobody would have noticed, right? Nobody would have noticed, But can I tell you that this was the moment in their lives. This was it. This was their moment right here. I think a lot of times we're thinking about about all the stuff that we would have to give up to follow God. But what we don't understand is that from his perspective, these are the moments that define us. These are our greatest triumphs when we choose to trust him in a risky situation. The irony of all this is Nebuchadnezzar was obsessed with glory. You know, historically, he was, he was the greatest king of this era. He built all of these amazing things, right? The, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He built all of this so that he would be remembered in a glorious way. And the irony is that these three guys, they're, they're remembered in a far more glorious way than he was, right? He's been exposed in history as a power-hungry tyrant. But these three people who would otherwise be totally nameless, their names resound in history through the ages because of one act of faithfulness. Because in one amazing episode, they put it all on the line and said, I'm trusting God. And what happened? God vindicated their trust. 
He proved himself faithful. And now that one act of faithfulness has defined them. Can I tell you that's also the story of the Bible? We wouldn't know who Mary was, except she'd take a great step of faith. She took her inheritance, right, her bride piece, and she broke it over Jesus and poured it out. And all the disciples went, oh, my gosh. She just wasted thousands, but Jesus saw it. Crazy woman, right? But Jesus saw it and said, no, you fools, right? He didn't say it like that. He said, no, don't you understand, right? She has done something that will be remembered forever now, right? Everywhere the gospel is preached, they'll tell the story of her. Why? Because it was her moment, right? It was her moment. That's just when we have faith, we, our, our view changes where we realize, look, do you realize everything that you're doing right now in your life, training, getting maturity, studying scripture, trying to be faithful, right? Trying to forgive, trying to repent, trying to honor God, everything is so that in your moment of testing, you'll pass the test. There was no more glorious opportunity for them. But sometimes when our vision is on things that don't matter, on things that are falling away and don't matter, we don't even see the moments. I always tell the testimony, when I was in college, the Lord showed me the most glorious moment of my life up until then. It was me getting rejected by this girl over and over in evangelism, right? But it, it, that was my most glorious moment, right? Wasn't glorious to anybody. It was pathetic. <laughs> but God showed me what it looked like from his perspective. Can I tell you, some of you, God has seen you take great steps of faith, and those are the moments, those are the triumphs that he sees in your life. Oftentimes, they don't impress people, but faith impresses God. Faith impresses him. He gets amazed by it when people show great faith because they trust him. And I, I want to tell you, you know, we were at Sam's and Eugene's wedding last night. <clears throat> and I just want to say, um, you know, many of us were, were there together. I felt so much pride in my heart for you guys. I just sense that there's so many of you that have really taken serious steps of faith in your walk with God. Put your lives um, really on the line. You've risked it for him. And I want to say, there was something that just came over my heart yesterday, and I just felt this great sense of pride. I know that there's so many in here who are doing it. They're really walking by faith and not by sight. And I have great hope. My number one prayer request for our ministry is that God would raise up heroes of faith in our generation. Man, I'm praying that out of our small little community, that there would be people that would rise up with such tremendous faith in the body. And that in the time of testing, that we would stand firm. Look, I pray this all the time. I don't know, I don't know if I would have the faith, the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in that, in that place. But I pray all the time, God, let me stand in the moment of my testing. Let me be ready for it, God. Let me be prepared for my time. If there's a time where I can stand and say, I'm trusting God, even though it costs me everything, even though I risk everything for it, I always pray, God, let me stand in that moment. Let me seize my moment. And brothers and sisters, I have the same holy ambition for you, that God will raise you up and that you'll seize your moment, even as God brings us into place where I, I believe some of us will have incredibly pivotal roles in the coming, in the coming moves of what God is doing 
and of this battle that we find ourselves in, I think um, there's a lot more to come. But I'm excited and hopeful that this period that we have right now, that we're being trained and prepared and making ourselves ready. Worship team, come on up. Brothers and sisters, you were made to live forever. This is one of the central promises of Scripture, that everybody who puts their faith in Jesus will be raised from the dead with immortal glorified bodies and that they'll be able to live forever in the life to come. We're not going to float on clouds. We're going to have jobs. We're going to have responsibilities. We're going to have real lives in eternity. Heaven and earth will be united in the way that they were always designed to be. Maybe one of us will have a house in L.A. (laughs) But you have to see it. You have to see it in your mind's eye to walk by faith. Right? Faith is the evidence of things unseen. We don't see these things now. That's why we have to walk by faith according to his word. We want his word to renew our minds, to show us the things that are truly important. Right? All of this, all of the, the majority of the stuff in this world, this is all passing away. Right? These small things are momentary fame. Even our, even our marriages. <laughs> me, and my, me and my wife have laughed about this one. You know, even our marriages are temporary. Okay? Just a blip of time. So stop idolizing your marriage. Okay? It's just a blip of time. Oh, that God would increase our faith that we would live this one life we have well. 70, 80 years, maybe. That's all you get. And then it's over. Y'all lived already like a quarter of it. Right? We have a short amount of time to live well. God, increase our faith. Right now, if we could stand up.